Did you know that the Tent Talks is supported by listeners just like you? Tent Talks is 100% patron supported. It takes time and effort and money to make these podcasts, and we are so grateful to the patrons who support our work. If anything we make has been useful or interesting to you, then perhaps you too would consider becoming a patron. For as little as £5 or $5 a month, you would have access to a lot of extra material. Studies, lectures, talks, music, interviews, loads of bonus stuff. Also once a month, the fellow Traveller patrons meet up on Zoom for discussion and questions and answers and to talk to the hosts of the Tent Podcast, as well as special guests. Become a patron today by following the links in the episode description of this podcast or by going to patreon.com and looking for Tent Theology. Help yourself out, help us out, and meet fellow travelers who care about the same things you care about. Who could possibly say no to that? Welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination. Stephen here. Welcome to the Tent Talks podcast. Our current series is on love. I've learnt over the last few years, if I needed learning it, that this is a hard and cruel world. But one of the things I've really noticed is how personal views of power, how personal attempts to hold on to power, lead to really hard and cruel institutions. We don't know how to love. Rather than look at all the bad things that we do over and over again to each other in organized and personal ways, I wanted to look at how to love. How can we find ways to make our power better for others? How can we find ways to personally pay attention to our neighbor, to consider others better than ourselves, to love our enemies, to do any of these things that the world desperately needs? We have to learn how to love. So with that in mind, I've been seeking the views of people whose words or actions I admire, who I see as examples of love in this age. My name is Melissa Flora Bixler. I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. I am the pastor of Raleigh Mennonite Church uh, by day and an author and sometimes speaker and often a community organizer with my time as well. Uh, Melissa, can I begin by asking a really simple question, which might not be that simple. What is an enemy? When we talk about who an enemy is, um, I, I think what we're often doing is 
um, needing to contrast that with other kinds of conflictual relationships that we have. Um, so there's a workshop that I lead about um, about how to have an enemy, about the book, about the concept of enemy love, and and so we put these sheets on the board and we say, you know, what is what? How would you describe an enemy versus a rival versus a person you're in conflict with? And I think once you start to pull out words that we think of as synonyms to enemies, um, we start to notice that we can, we, we do recognize that there, that there's some differences here. And I would say that one of the primary differences between these other types of conflictual relationships is power. When I think about enemy relationships, um, and I've, I'll use the context of scripture, these are relationships that are often defined by differences of power that then result in oppression or repression, attempts at control or coercion. Whereas language, the language of rivals, right, is we, we sort of imagine that there's something, there's still conflict, but there's a sense of e- equality of power, at least an ability to negotiate that power. Uh, enemies is something different. So what is love then? Love is the way that we live in a redeemed world that no longer is controlled and mandated by the powers and principalities of the old age. And when we move towards love, we're moving in the direction of reshaping a world uh, so that that is possible, that we have the groundwork uh, for um, the creation of that kind of world to come into being. I want to thank you so much. I want to read, uh, if you don't mind, a chapter or a paragraph from your own book, because the next thing I want to ask is like, how do you love your enemies? But I, I wonder whether we, we could unpack this paragraph that you that you wrote in, in the chapter about love of enemies, right? Love your enemies. You said, Jesus does not call us to enemy love for the purpose of making miserable people content with their misery. Neither is enemy love a way to adjudicate interpersonal conflict. These ways of interpreting the command to love one's enemies blunts the power and force of the gospel. Instead, enemy love offers to tear apart broken systems and rebuild a world with an imaginative architecture that emerges from lives stayed on liberating love. All right, Musa. How do we love our enemies? What what is false enemy love? You kind of take shot at two forms of false enemy love, or that you think don't work, and then you offer this intoxicating vision of what it could be. So let's talk about what is enemy love now. Then what is it not, and what is it? What it is, what it is not, um, is the erasure of conflict the desire to reach a place of stasis or middle ground or compromise. Um, all of that is important for our, for our social lives, for our civic lives, but it is not the same as loving your enemy. And, and I think that often gets confused because the way that we learn about enemy love in our ecclesial spaces is also a space that that is imbued with power relationships and economic relationships right we our churches are 
their businesses that that need to that need to keep afloat. They um, are often filled with bureaucracies that need to be maintained. And so we're already in a place of um, needing to do some untangling because we are often learning what this means in uh, institutions that are convinced of the need for their own survival above all else. And so what we see often in our churches is this desire to help people get along to reach the middle. We have this language in the U.S. church where there's a lot of um, uh, lifting up of what we call purple churches, right? If we can get Democrats and Republicans to worship together in the same place, then that is sort of this fulfillment of the gospel message. And um, another example in the book is if we can get, you know, ICE agents and people they're deporting to share communion together, then this, then we've realized the kingdom of God. and. As we encounter this God who is revealed to Moses, who we then um, see come into the fulfillment of human life in Jesus, that isn't the model that we're given. Jesus does not sit down and try to bring the um, religious leaders of the day together with the, the, the revolutionary zealots and see if they can kind of work something out together, right? There's this, there's a, instead we get this love that just refuses to participate um, at all in sort of the negotiations of power of, of the day. Um, and this rejection takes the form of of a radical new way of life that offers to save both enemies and the the people who uh, who they have made enemies, people, both the oppressed and the oppressor. But the only way that love can do that is to first be honest about about enemies. We have to have an a, an ability to be able to name the systems and the people who scaffold those systems who participate in them. And then to take the next step, what sort of turns hate into love is to say, I also long for your redemption. I also want you to be freed from the demonic powers of racism. I want you to be freed from the demonic power of patriarchy that binds you to a life of um, degrading other people and also degrading yourself. That's the path that Jesus set us on for love. You mentioned the ICE officer who's also there with the so-called illegal migrant. Um, I don't think any human is illegal, so I'm using that with heavy quotes, but the person who's in the country against the laws. And, you th and, and there's the sort of purple church, which is, oh, isn't this nice? They're all singing together and clapping at the same time. And then uh, isn't that nice? They put their differences aside for this two hours on a Sunday morning. What would the vision you've just described, what would it actually look like to, to talk about the, the structures and to dismantle the powers in a, in a Sunday morning in this specific example? I, I would hope that churches where there are people who are being directly or indirectly harmed by other people in their congregation can create spaces for confession of that can find the space that there can that we can create um the kind of brave spaces we need to be able to say who are we <laughs> who what what is the um what is the hope that we bring to the world 
if we can if we can't even do this here, if we cannot even hear among these people who have said Jesus is Lord, stop kidnapping people from our communities and returning to the to places where they are in danger. What does that mean for our witness in the world? And then you cautiously and hopefully move people along into this place of um, honesty about who we are, right? This is, this is what, what the, what the church offers us is this opportunity for confession um, to be able to say, look, I know that the, that you just think this is your job, but we need, we need to talk about who we are going to be um, as a church and, and hold one another accountable to that. I've never thought of confession as a form of enemy love or as a component of enemy love. But of course, you're right. You're making the space where repentance is possible, right? Which is how you best love somebody who's a victim of a bad system, right? Yeah. And I mean, you think about this in terms of just the liturgical format of Eucharist. The first thing we do is we confess. (laughs) I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I have done and by what I have left undone, right? We come to this place of recognition of our own failure. Um, and then and only then do we approach the table that makes us one. <laughs> it is then that we come and we say, yes, I am what I eat. I become one body with this people. Um, I think the misdirection over time is that we've made that, we've personalized that. You know, your thoughts, words, and deeds are not just internal to you. They impact the living body of your community. They are, they have something to do with the people to whom you are declaring, I am one. Um, And if you are involved in intimate partner violence against your wife um, before you come to the table, if you are creating a situation of payday loans for someone in your congregation or some other person for another Christian before you come to the table, that confession should call us to repentance. That's, that's the movement of, of our Eucharistic ritual, which is the center of our lives as Christians. Is there any, or what is the scope for interpersonal, for enemy love as a, as a route to interpersonal reconciliation is is there any scope for that or is it do you always want to really focus on the more i suppose we would call it systematic or communal structures well i i mean i i think that feminism is right the political is always personal right there's there isn't actually a way to pull those things apart and this is where i think there there is a sense of needing to recognize the role that all of us play in in keeping these systems alive, right? If we all just said we weren't going to participate anymore, these systems wouldn't exist, right? This is, and this is, of course, how Jesus ends up getting killed. He's got enough people who are opting out that the system of Roman expansionism, the the false piece of the Pax Romana, it it cannot withstand the. Uh, destruction of the patron system, right? It cannot stand the devaluation of household and economic gods that that sort of hold the social socioeconomic structure together. You get in it. This is why Anabaptists are killed in vast numbers. You know, if you ever get enough people who refuse to join the military, who no longer participate in infant baptism and are no and therefore are no longer on the tax rolls 
you can't keep the state going, right? And so I think there is something important to recognizing the role that we play and how that impacts us relationally, which is again, why I, I'm a pastor. I, I believe in the church and this is why, because the place where you can actually see that happening is in people who are committed to a common life together. You can actually see in the room how other people's lives are impacted by the forms of desolation that we live into. And then we get to figure out what it means to reconcile in the midst of that and to be called into new ways of life together, Um, which is just a very powerful, powerful way to see the gospel unfold among us. What do you think about, it just occurs to me, like, I haven't even read it yet. I don't know if you, you must, I'm sure you address this, but there is a common line that essentially is like that Jesus tells you to love your enemy and also to love your neighbor as yourself. And there's a sense that we don't actually really ever have enemies. All our enemies are also just neighbors. And that, you know, so, so there's almost, a, this is kind of line sometimes people take of like, they aren't really your enemy. They're just neighbors. And so there's, it almost just sort of dissolves the the concept of enemy in the first place. But that seems to go against some of the stuff you've been talking about, which is where an enemy is a real solid, you know, force of <laughs> in your life, right? So what do, what do you say to that kind of line of of where some Christians try and interpret the love of enemy as essentially just the same as the love of neighbor? Yeah, I mean, I I just don't I don't think it's a good exegesis because, of course. So it's, those are put into juxtaposition. Well, you've heard it say, love your neighbors. um, And I say to you, no, love your enemies. Those are sort of this expectation of both the people who are around us, who are for us, the the community that sustains us, but also to love those, um, to wish for the, the redemption and create a path of redemption and return for people who are beyond the circle of your own sort of um, system of care. And I think it, without that that recognition, we aren't left with very much <laughs> to, to work with, right? Like, I think it's really important that people who've experienced sexual violence can name that this is a relationship of enmity and one that is costly for them to make a path for return. That may require, often requires significant boundaries it can't maybe a brokenness that can never be fully recovered, that there's always the sort of sense of the the scar of this wound can will will always be visible. Taking that away from people who've experienced significant harm and sort of saying, throwing it into the ether of, well, there's just that that feels like it comes from people who actually have not experienced real catastrophic coercive harm in their lives. Yeah, you may you do make the uh you, you point out how a lot of it's black Americans say will say, oh, it's always the white Christians who care about the the questions about sort of loving enemies and stuff. It's kind of like they use it as a weapon to kind of say, Oh, you shouldn't fight, you shouldn't fight, you're supposed to love your enemy and just keep the peace, right? Right. And that a place of privilege is being is using that that kind of line of thinking to actually just keep things exactly the way they always were, rather than name what's really going on. Yeah, I mean that's what James Cone says. Like the only per- the only group of people during the civil rights who are really interested in weaponizing love of enemies were these middle of the road white churches who want didn't want people to leave, right? And it's the same thing now. This is it's the same churches who 
want to keep their base of Trump supporters and and not say anything about politics because it's important. I mean, there we just need a much more sort of honest, as pastoral leaders, a much more honest sense of why we are invested in that in a, in that sort of vision of our church. What's the role of re- of reconciliation then? If I mean, you mentioned things like sexual violence. You mentioned some sort of deeply entrenched violent racism. Uh, what, uh, you know, what is the relationship between loving your enemy and being reconciled? Because a lot of people will think that those two are are essentially the same thing, but I don't think you think they're the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I have enemies, and it, but both by um, you know what Willie Jennings would say sharing the burden of enmity with those who um, are directly experiencing um, harm and people who have harmed me. I long for that reconciliation um, because I think that's what love is. And I also know that that um, I can't predetermine that (laughs) um, because it love is is material. It's not a personal feeling I have. I have a therapist who I work with all the time to sort of um, regulate my um, stress and emotions about the the pain and difficulty in our world and church and our, our community. But that's not the same as love. I do hope for reconciliation. And I think it looks like, um, again, confession. It It means reparations of some kind. It can mean boundaries that have to be placed. It's communal accountability. It's restorative justice, right? Those are all sort of the words that create the path for reconciliation. And you mentioned, I mean, the book is called How to Love Your Enemies. And we've mentioned truth-telling. What what are some other, and you said that love is practical, love is material, love is deep into the fabric of our lived existence, how, what are some other hows? How can we start doing this? How do we have enemies then? You know, another important chapter in this book, and, and when I talk about more, is when, it, is when we create, when we utilize enmity to create a either false image of enmity or to overstate harm in a way that um, actually brings more oppression and more conflict into our world. So the the chapter I write about this is the way that that Christians have made an enemy out of Judaism over time, out of the Jewish people, by constructing these catastrophic lies about Jewish people, by scapegoating, by utilizing an an inner community conversation that's happening in the Gospels, and then projecting it onto state religion. And so we also need to be aware of the ways that we utilize the language of enmity to actually deepen places of division where it may not actually be there in the way that we think it is. So I just, I'll, I'll just lift up this book for your readers too. I just finished a, a book called, I'm looking around for it right now. Sarah Schulman wrote a book called Conflict is Not Abuse, Overstating Harm, Community Responsibility, and the Duty of Repair. And this is an incredible book that I think sort of digs deeper into that question of 
how do we how do we weaponize the language of harm in a way that actually decreases our ability to communally understand what is happening among us? Well, the classic persecution complex of the white evangelical, right? Yeah, right. I mean, this is, yeah, that's a great example. And Sarah Schulman, who's been a part of the the Jewish peace movement in the United States and um, work for Palestine, talks about this in the relationship between Palestinians and um, Jewish Israelis, right? She, so there's all of these places in our, that there's this real effect of saying, when do we overstate harm? to make it actually harder for repair to happen. And that's also where I have a lot of hope for the church as being a place where we can actually have those conversations too. Um, What really happens here? Um, Was this a time where you were experiencing persecution or are you uncomfortable right now? Where is this a time where you actually felt that um, someone was harming you or someone was actually just asking you to be accountable for something you did? And so we we have to develop those places and those that sort of muscle within our relationships and our own lives, um, or otherwise, our circles are just going to get so small, right? We we have the sort of language of purity politics that eventually, I am the only righteous one left, right? And there's which is it's really hard to get things done when you are the only true disciple. <laughs> um, and so I think we're always sort of working with you know, both of these realities that um, affect different communities in different ways. Uh, have you ever read any Kierkegaard on love? I'm, his, I know he is so important to you, but I have not read a lot of Kierkegaard. Oh, that's fine. He he like what you've just said. It's very interesting because he likens sort of patriotism actually to masturbation because he's like, the whole point of patriotism is that you always are trying to love people who look like you and sound like you as much as possible. You're only grouping these pure groups that have no mixture in them. And he says, well, the ultimate horizon of that is just you. Yeah, right. If you're only ever grouping with people that look like you and sound like you as much as possible, you are the ultimate end yeah. point. And that's what what kind of love is that? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it, 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 it sound it talks like love and it sounds like love, but it's not at all. Right. Yeah. And this is where I think, you know, whenever I have conversations about the book with people, I do think there is this. And I think it's a genuine concern. You know, how do we not get into this place where the circle is so small? You know, I want to interact with people who are different than me. I want to be able to hear the other side of things. I want to be able to use the relational skills to overcome conflict. And I think those are all important tools. <laughs> they are of one, those are those are in the large toolbox of ways that we respond to the sort of entrenched enmity that's in our world. Those are important, but those are not the only tools available to us. Those are, and when we start to say, oh, if we just talk, if we just talk this out, if we just find a way to sit at the table together and eat this meal, everything will be fine. What that means is that the person who's experienced harm is bearing the burden of this of the unity in that relationship, right? There, so we also just need to be better about power analysis. You know, it's very different in my congregation where we, where I think we can say there's a lot of difference between us. We have some people who are counter protester, anti fascist, out every weekend 
trying to like, like disrupt these systems. And then we have people who are like very staunch democratic party. Like they just want to like, you know, support the party. Those are actually very different visions. Um, and they're often in conflict and they're not always, um, and sometimes they require a conversation to say, I think what you're doing is actually inciting more conflict, right? Like um, this idea that somehow starting with a, a base of people who have similar commitments suddenly makes all the conflict go away. And I hear people say, oh, I would love to be in your church that never has, you know, where you don't have any Trump supporters that you know of. Um, and I'm like, no, like we have quite, we have questions about affordable housing and, and, and where people live and what we eat and what do we do about calling the police? Um, you know, these are all questions that continue, but we actually have a place to begin that conversation um, around certain shared commitments that shape our life. And that I think is what the church has the possibility to be when we're not so concerned about our survival. We are coming into a close. I just absolutely love this, by the way. I'm absolutely loving this. Uh, is there anything else that I didn't ask or that you'd love to say that you'd like to add? I mean, just just any final thoughts that you want to get out there about love and enemies? I know that we are moving into a time period where the church has lost an incredible amount of um the trust of people who are committed to um, a world of justice and peace. Um, and the reason I stick around for this experiment called the church is because I, I think that we need to be able to be in communities that can learn how to hold each other accountable. Church is one of the places that we can make that available to one another. I always feel like the need to somehow stick it out with the church because the church has become your enemy. And if that, what you, you know, this is also something we hear and you have to love your enemy. You have to, you have to stick around and be harmed over and over again. It is just another one of these lies, right? That is built into bureaucratic institutional systems. And at the same time, I think that there are places where we can create the kinds of spaces, communities, churches that take seriously the kind of work that has to happen among people if we're going to imagine a world that looks any different than the way that we do things now. Because if we can't even do that among ourselves, how, what is our hope for anything beyond? If we can't even figure out how to get people in a room together and to figure out how to to deal with our conflicts, how are we ever expecting a world without um, the death penalty, right? Um, with some forms of, of systems that don't require state intervention for punishment and control, right? Um, and so one of the things we often say in the abolition movement is abolition begins at home. If you wanna have a world without policing, without prisons, you have to figure out, you have to figure out how to do it in your home first. And so let's figure out how to do this at home. Let's let's live this out among our own people. That can be a hope for a world without enemies beyond our neighbors. 
That's so great. Thank you so much. I, I oh, I loved it. I'm so glad I got to meet you. Yeah, and I'm going to finish Stephen. reading this book, but I, I really enjoyed it. I'll, I'll thanks, be in touch. Stephen. Have a good rest <laughs> I appreciate. Day. I really, I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune, and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.